In this episode of 92Y Talks, comedian and best-selling author Jen Kirkman discusses her new book, I Know What I'm Doing and Other Lies I Tell Myself, and shares her unique views on how to figure out life with Jenny Connor, executive producer of the HBO series Girls. The conversation was recorded on April 14th, 2016, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Hi, everyone. Um, so I'm going to moderate, and I have some questions for you. And I just want to say I loved your book so much. Oh, I thought it was you. amazing. Um, the way that Jen and I got to know each other was actually through social media. Yeah. Um, through we, Twitter. Through Twitter. We started, and I have many questions about Twitter for later, but we started um, DMing each other and quickly realized we were both sort of recently divorced and had both escaped to Malibu. Yes, that was like our, our big our big getaway. <clears throat> I think yours went better than mine because, um, <clears throat> pardon me, when I wrote my first book a few years ago, um, I was newly, or I guess separated technically, and I thought, oh, I have a book deal and I'm divorced, and well, I guess it's time to rent a cottage in Malibu for a couple of weeks. And then um, I just basically rented someone's back house, and they misrepresented how close it was to the beach. So it was more this canyon that's technically in Malibu County, but it would have been an hour walk to the beach <laughs> and a 10-minute drive. And um, my book was about how I didn't want to have kids. And so I was sitting there in their weird, creepy house that was full of spiders. But in that, like, quaint country way, if you, you know, if you, it wasn't dirty, it was just nature. And then the woman, the woman didn't tell me that she had a kid. And so the kid was obsessed with whoever was staying in the guest house. And so she would stare at me writing. <laughs> what, where do you live? What are you doing? And I'm like, I'm writing a book about how I don't want one of you. So, <laughs> the woman was so up in my business, like it was not at all relaxing. And I left after um, two days. And I said I had a, an emergency and that I didn't even need my money back. Like, I just, like, it's fine, don't even worry about it. But she did, she nicely gave me my money back because of the death in my family in New Jersey. And I don't have any relatives in New Jersey. So I felt it wasn't bad karma to Oh my God, that's yeah. incredible. I'm way too, I like have to knock on that table just hearing you say the death in my family. Well, I said relative, a relative, relative in, New Jersey, in New Jersey. And it's like, <laughs> it's not specific enough to like curse me or anything. Come back, back at you. Um, but yes, yeah, so we were DMing about that. And, yeah. But I think your Malibu experience was you, you were probably I, mine was, longer. Yes, was I was. Yeah. It was better. Mine was actually at the beach. Mine um, did the thing it was supposed to do. I yeah. Think. It kind of, you know, uh, was like a place to where it was like okay to drink wine at noon. For totally. like that was like it's really appropriate in Malibu. And yeah, that helped yeah. me through my divorce too. <laughs> like, a, a nice Chardonnay. Just don't get on the PCH yes, drive after. Exactly. You don't have to. <laughs> um, okay, so here's my first official question. Mm -hmm. So this is just: Does current feminism ever make you feel a hundred years old? It does actually. Um, I. Yeah, it does. Well, it's funny. Like I remember when Girls first came out. I, it didn't make me feel old. It just made me feel like, oh, kind of like everything old is new again in the sense that we all kind of deal with the same things at any age and in our 20s and, you know, dating or am I getting an STD test or whatever. But it was something about this past year, and I think it is because of social media. So I don't know if social media is bringing it to light or it's just the people on social media are a little boisterous or out of their minds or just really young and I'm dealing with like teenagers who are all like, I know what I am. Right. But I, with the whole Bernie Sanders thing, I am flipping out at the new feminism. Like when I was in college, it was the 90s. And so I was part of, I thought what was called third wave feminism. And there was a book about it by this woman, Jennifer Baumgartner, that came out when I was in my early 20s, and I was called a third waiver. And Gloria Steinem, I think, was thought of as a second, second waiver. waiver. Yeah. And now I'm hearing that the women are saying, I'm a second waiver. You're the second yeah, waiver? Yeah, and that they're third wave. So I don't know if they just don't know, or they're just lumping me in because anything over 40 is, is also just like, 80. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so 
Wow, maybe we're, I really don't think I Gloria would let us call ourselves second waivers. No, I think it's <laughs> just like generational infighting where, I mean, at least it's only happened to me online. I haven't like experienced it in person, but I, it makes me want to act like an old lady, like you wouldn't even be doing this right. if it wasn't for me. That's right. But um, what, like, like I, but I feel like anyone just living their authentic life it is helping the next generation. And, and so, but there seems to be this like, I know every generation says this, but I can see it, this lack of respect for what came before. It's not like, and thank you guys, and we're building. Right. It's like, you're all stupid, you old, you know, oh, you think. But like, I think that's part of it. I think that I think has that's to like, be part of it. That's part of the cycle. I guess I I'm uncomfortable like, with it. Yeah, yeah. well, because now we're the other one on the other side. Well, I was talking to my friend about it who has a kid, and she's like, oh, yeah, that's just what happens. And right. since I don't have that experience at home with being told I'm a stupid old loser who doesn't know anything. Right. Um, I guess if I had a child... You could come to my house. Oh, you yeah. can hear that every day if you want. I mean, as painful as it is, I think I've already heard that that happens when you have a child. Right. But I didn't know that strangers could say that to me, and I'd be like, no. Yes. And so, um, yeah, I feel really old, and I guess part of it is feeling defensive. Like, I guess there is more I have to learn, but I hope, I hope everything I know isn't wrong no you know <laughs> it, yeah it really i do feel no but you can always find wrong. someone more radical than you to hate on you for not being radical enough yeah i'm not radical enough because i would vote for hillary clinton if right. she's the nominee and I it's know. like I i'm guess not I'm radical a, in the same I'm i bet that most whore. of this audience is not <laughs> radical um but this is actually a good transition i think into internet stuff mm. which is i wanted to talk to you about a lot of things but so the internet is the sort of hideous, vile place a lot of the time, but it's also a place where a lot of people with marginalized voices get heard. Yeah. Like women. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I'm just wondering, like, sort of your relationship to it, because occasionally you'll get in, like, a Twitter battle with people, and you're pretty comfortable in a really combative space on yeah. there. And so I'm just wondering, like, how, how do you find that balance? When do you decide to engage? Like, how do you... Well, live I remember, your Twitter life, and don't forget to mention the um, what is it? Boring cunts. What did you call everyone in Ireland on Twitter? Oh, <laughs> bunch of cunts. Bunch of drunken cunts. Yeah, which I will explain. I was, <laughs> but um, yeah, I think Twitter. Well, especially because, and I don't mean this in a like way, me way. I I just don't work in the space of TV as much as like having my own show, my own Netflix special. I, it's just, so my voice is my Twitter account, and I have the luxury of not being uh, famous to the level where I'm in industry and Sony would get mad if I acted a certain way. So I can do whatever I want while I'm still in that area. So from what I've noticed, like my job is to sell tickets to see me live. And I don't mean to sound manipulative, but <clears throat> people can see me for free all the time. Twitter, a podcast, this or that. If they see I'm rolling through town, it's sort of like, I don't think they're thinking of it in that way of, I want to keep Jen employed, I'll go see her. Right. I think it's like, oh, she's funny, I'm glad she's in town. But if you feel a connection with someone, you will go see them. And so I know that that's important to do with people online. And I'm not doing it for that end goal, but I don't mind. Right, if anyone there are certainly other me, ways to engage. Yeah, <laughs> and if anyone ever told me to stop doing it, I think I would say, well, this actually more people come to me with, hey, thanks for doing this. But I like my, my one rule on Twitter is I will argue with people if it's about feminism. Uh. Um, and a lot of men always ask me about, you know, like, you, you slam down haters on Twitter. And I'm like, it's not haters, it's sexists. Right. And these are people we see in real life. And yeah. they're not trolls in their mother's basement. They are the people we've dealt with in real life forever. And now they're also online, just like we are. And so I don't bother getting into, if someone doesn't think I'm funny, like, I'm sure, I'm sure, I assume people don't. When I play for a crowd of 300 and I know that there's a stadium down the street, that's the logic that goes, hey, not everyone thinks you're funny. So like, if, someone <laughs> says that to, if someone says that to me online, I'm not like, what? So the only, thing I, I, <clears throat> the only thing I battle about is sexism. And I think that's where I get really nervous is like, again, back, back in the 90s. But I remember we had Kurt Cobain talking about being a feminist and why don't they teach people not to rape instead of teaching women how to prevent being yeah. raped. And I thought, oh, here we go, like it's fine now. Yeah. We're gonna get there. And 20 years later, we're still restarting the same conversation. And I, and in some ways going backwards. Yeah, and it seems really hopeless. So my big thing is 
showing younger women like it's okay to talk about this stuff. Don't let the guys tell you that it's a first world problem because if it is, then it should be pretty easy to take care of and let's just do that and then right. we'll move on to the next things. And um, so I like to just, what I'm really focused on on Twitter is the language that people use or the subtle things that people say, complimenting a woman in entertainment's looks as well as her thing or asking people out online. I just, it, it really, I don't have a sense of humor about it because it, it speaks to a greater thing of like, even the most liberal, cool guys still treat women in this kind of antiquated way. And well, I've so, seen you do a thing which I love where you post your, you, when you get propositioned online. Uh -huh which I think is great. If someone sends me a direct message, I will post it on Instagram. And <laughs> I love it. And that's, you know, if they wanted to be it, my boyfriend, then they, they have to accept that I do things publicly. And it's like, I, but I will get, you know, I did this Netflix special where I made a joke about how I went on a one night stand date with a 23 year old, like literally a week after I got separated. I never went out with anyone that young again. It was a Rider. joke. What? Isn't his name Ryder? It's Ryder, but that's not his real name. <laughs> um, if we weren't live streaming, I'd say it. And, um, the point about it is it's this, I think of it as this feminist piece and the thing that's like, we all this notion like, I'm going to do what guys do. And then we realize, well, that doesn't mean that's a good thing to do either. And then I talk about how I think it's disgusting to have that much of an age difference. And for some reason, young guys, that's all they focus on is that I did that once. And I get tons of direct <laughs> messages like, I'm 22, I, you know, and then that, that whole like, I'd do you, like, yeah, I, I bet right. what, I yeah. any guy would right. know this. Yeah. So I just expose it because I don't know why, and it gets women talking. And then, you know, that when we had Yes All Women, that, that time on the internet, yeah. that hashtag, it was the, I always felt really alone on the internet. I would watch my comedian guy friends just joking around with each other, and I'd be sitting there fielding like horrible, horrible things that people would say to me, men usually, and I just thought it's two different worlds on here and they don't know. And I tried to engage the men in it, and I started a blog called Ma'am, Men Against Assholes and Misogyny. Oh, yeah, I remember. And I asked a bunch of male comedians to write for it and just write about their experience as a man who identifies as a feminist. I can only get one, and I know about a couple hundred. Right. And there was always an excuse. One person said, oh, I don't, I'm not comfortable with the word asshole. I don't want to have to like retweet that. And it was unbelievable. Right. And, and then when that Yes All Women thing happened, and women were sharing their stories, and we were flooding Twitter, I felt so happy and at home, and I was checking it every second. When I checked it the next day, and it was gone. I couldn't believe it. And I guess the woman got death threats, and she asked everyone to stop using that hashtag. And to get death threats about explaining that sometimes you've gotten death threats on the street is crazy. So yeah. weirdly, I had like a minor street harassment moment last week, and I tweeted about it. Basically what had happened, I was walking down the street in Melbourne, Australia, and I had a really cool coat on. And I wasn't afraid for my life or anything, but these four drunk guys just went, nice coat. <clears throat> and it's like, I'm a grown woman. I don't need to be yeah. talked to that way. And I didn't answer because there's no point. Um, sometimes I have had people yell out things, nice coat, and I'm like, cool, thanks, man, I'm not, you know, and, and I just didn't say anything, and then they were like, bitch, and it, it didn't scare me, because luckily there was a lot of people out on the street, but to go from complimenting to so calling fast. me anger so fast, they were never complimenting you in the first place, it was always yeah. a power thing. Right. So I tweeted that, and um, all these women started writing their own kind of yes all women stories, and then I decided, I'm gonna retweet them all. And I know that it's really annoying on your feed to see all these retweets, but that's my point, volume, volume. And I just right. kept doing it. And I would put little notices out, like I'm about to do another round, you can you know, mute it if you want or whatever. But um, I actually got like 5,000 more followers in a day and all these women were saying, thanks for doing this. And I was like, we did this a year ago, what do you mean thanks for doing this? Right. Like people already forgot that already happened. It's right. just, I feel like we just keep not making any ground on what could be the easiest thing to teach people and the easiest thing for them to listen to. And so I will keep doing it because I don't think there's any point for me. I don't just want to sit there and promote my shows and make jokes. Like, it's the one place I can do something serious because yeah. it's free and, and I don't have funny jokes about that stuff. So I love, it's perfect for me. And I don't know if it's helping anything, but anytime a woman's anything like, is yeah, helping. anyone talking about it is yeah. good, I think. Um, so anyway, that's, yeah, I enjoy doing that. Do you have a lot of female fans? Like, do you know what you're, when you go into your, your 300 people in a room, is it? It's usually pretty mixed. Yeah. Weirdly, the males are more vocal. Like with my book, I have a whole like thing of 
people have sent me pictures of them holding the book, and it's all dudes. Wow. And women tend to just t take a picture of the book. <laughs> and you can see their nail. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Yes. I was going to post something about that tomorrow, just about like men of no problem being like, I love that. my face. And also, I'm glad they're reading it, but it's really split. I have a really good mix. And they're yeah. not even particularly, some of the guys that come to my shows, I'm like, oh my God, they must have got a free ticket. They don't know what it is. I'm just totally judging them on their looks. Right. And they're like, hey, I'm your biggest fan. And I'm like, what? The guy in the baseball hat? Right. Okay. <laughs> That's so great. Mm -hmm. Do you think, do you think, I mean, obviously since you've been in comedy, which is a fairly misogynistic world, Yeah. Uh, do you think that it's gotten better for women since you started? Do you mean in like stand-ups? Yeah. I thought it had, but then the young girls are telling me it's bad again. Like, Oh, is that true? It's so weird. When I started, I started in Boston, I started with four guys. It's usually the ratio, like four guys, one girl. There are other women and stuff, but we became this little group and we performed every Friday night together. And they're, the, they're still my friends today. They're the nicest, sweetest guys. Some of them I ended up dating. Like, they're wonderful and, yeah. and yeah, like feminist. And there was never a, oh, you're a girl. It was always like, I actually was the more ambitious one in some ways. And it was always like, oh, Jen's the one that's going to leave here and move to New York and do this. And so I just lived in this utopia until I started trying to play the comedy clubs in New York when I moved here, but I was a bad comic because it was only a year in. Right. So that's why I didn't get in. How but, long, just for the record, like <laughs> how many years would you, if you were giving a young woman advice, like if you were, if they were like, how long till I'm good? What would you say? Like average? Eight. Wow. Because you have to get to know yourself. I mean, you're being yourself up there and audiences are really psychic, whether they know it or not. Right. So if you don't find someone funny one night or you just don't feel like it, they're giving a vibe that they're not comfortable yet, and you can only get comfortable by doing it so many times. And I know so many people that have the most clever jokes. Like, a, a lot of guys who open for me on the road will be obsessed with their jokes backstage. What do you think of this? And, and, they're, and it's great, but when they get out there, they're, they don't think they're wobbly, and that's what adds to the awkwardness. Right. Like, they're kind of posturing a little, and so it, I think it's hard for grown-ups in the audience to care what someone who's 21 is saying as a stand-up. Right. I think if you're making a film or something, it's, it's like you're creating your world and we're coming in it. Well, I mean, I was always, I've been in a million round tables where I'm the only woman. Oh, yeah. That was my role for so long. Mm -hmm. It's so, now to be on Girls and Surrounded by Women is incredible. It's such a great, yeah, well, I know so many women in, that I work with and, and um, but when I tour now, I, and I have a rule note, um, unless they're a trans or a gay, no white guy allowed to open for me, only because they just get so many opportunities. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And weirdly, it's still this thing that we're still socializing people. The men all ask me for spots. They find my email or they direct message me, and they, I don't even know them. And they're like, I hear you're coming to Iowa. Can I open for you? And the women never ask. Right. And so I always put it out there to if they can open for me or something like that. I just want people have more Diversity. chances. Yeah, but the women always say to me, in these, especially in the Midwest, the boys are so mean to us. It's happening in Los Angeles, too. I'm like, what do you mean? Tell me. And they're like, at the open mics, young men will introduce their peers. So nobody's really funny yet. Yeah. Like, here's a woman. I'd, I'd have sex with her, like, making rape jokes, like oh this whole God. rape joke obsession. And so they, all the women feel really uncomfortable at the open mics. They can't get stage time, and the men objectify them. At, while they're bringing them on the stage. And I, and I was like, what? The only people who did that to me when I was starting out were like 60-year-old guys when right. I was 25 in New York. And they were like, yeah, honey, real cute, but you know, you're not going to last. So and until it was then, you charming. would have, right. And until then, you would <laughs> <laughs> I was like, of course they're sexist. But a 22-year-old, right. what business does he have being sexist? Well, <laughs> um, and I interrupted you before you were telling the story right. when you were one year in. Oh, that was just what I was going to say. Is oh, that yeah. I was having trouble uh, getting booked at clubs here, and that really was not sexism. That was just like, I wasn't funny yet. Right. Although I, there were a couple guys that also weren't funny, but I think the thing that sucks is everyone is unfunny at first. Right. And it, but as a woman, you represent all women. So if a crowd sees an unfunny just starting out comic, it's like women aren't funny. It's like, no, she's just not funny yet. Because right, right. when an unfunny dude comes on, people go, that dude's not funny. 
they don't go, all dudes aren't fun. Right. So that, I think, is the thing that probably still happens. And so unfunny comedy is the worst thing ever. And I hate even having to... Uh, it's, it's tough. It's tough to have even opening acts sometimes because I'm like... <laughs> This, that sounds horrible, but I just, I just want, I just want to tell them. I, I would never give unsolicited advice. I guess that's right. why it's hard for me. I just want to tell them, like, don't worry so much about the jokes because if you look comfortable, the audience will go wherever. If right. you're a writer, then worry about the jokes. If you're writing for Jimmy Fallon or something, but just concentrate on not looking like freaked out up there. What do you, the young women who you're talking about who are experiencing this, like, what do you tell them? Well. I'm like, call out these guys. What are you afraid of? They have right. no power. Put their names on the internet. Right. Tell someone above them. Like, tell on them. Yeah. Or get the mic and just obliterate them. Don't do your act. Just point out what they've done and treat them. Just go nuts. Right. Go riot girl on them. Like, go nuts. And I, I mean, I would be thrilled to see that if someone did that. Yeah, I mean, I would have done that. And that, again, is growing up, like, listening to bands like Bikini Kill and all those punk girl bands that were like, we're not taking this crap anymore. And like, you know, I just, they're afraid. And I'm like, ah, oh, I thought it just would magically be better. And then a lot of them start their own thing, but I'm like, don't separate yourself. If you right. want to start a women's something that's a safe haven, great. But also do the other stuff. Yeah, you have to. And that was something that, that was advice I had been given when I was starting out, that I started to just go where I was welcome. Right. And I wasn't, you can't just keep playing little like cabaret rooms where everyone understands you. You eventually have to keep trying to get everyone to laugh at you. Right. And that's how you get good. Yeah, yeah. Right. And do you, well, hold on. I'm going I'm, I'm to get to yes. one of these questions, <laughs> I swear. Consult your cards. <laughs> Let me just consult my cards for a minute. Um, well, Okay, so the other thing, one of the other things I wanted to talk about, because it's, you know, for those of you who don't have the book yet, it's, it, uh, it's sort of Jen telling essays about getting back on her feet after divorce, I would say, is yeah. one way to look at it. It's very funny, obviously. Um, and, and so, and one of the things we connected on is divorce, but I think there's like this way that divorce is portrayed in the media all the time, like a Nancy Myers movie, like a girl eating ice cream and sobbing and whatever. Yeah. And, I just thought what was so exciting about this book and fresh about it is is your portrayal of divorce as what it looked to me like, which yeah. is what it really looks like. Yeah. And it's, you know, experimenting and, and sort of doing anything that you think might make you feel better for a minute, whether it's like being with younger guys or any of that. And yeah. Were you, when you were writing it, were you like, were you purposely pushing against kind of the stereotypes of that? or I was, well, I it, it organically was my story yes but I was happy to not yes I was happy to push that narrative because I'm also sick of it being like I'm not single because I'm raw raw single like hey girls let's get the Chardonnay like a loving single it's not my identity right it's just you know sometimes I'm in a relationship sometimes I'm not and when I'm in when I love it when I'm not unless I'm pining away for someone specifically I'm fine yeah and so for me, getting divorced wasn't, I, I, and I say it rather defensively, and I hate to say it because I feel like, I don't wanna make my husband look bad or anything, but I left my husband. I didn't wanna be married anymore. And by the way, he was fine with it. I mean, I think but, we both were fine. You say in the book, it seemed like he was relieved. I think. Yeah, yeah. And so, but it's one of those things where I didn't leave to pursue this. I didn't know what I was going towards. And for me personally, to have, done something like that was the first time I did anything that brave in my life. Yeah. Um, I've had anxiety and panic disorder my whole life and I was always very broke and I was always, and I think when my husband and I got together, I think I just thought, here's a nice person who won't leave and I'm 30 and no, so, so we were together from 30 to 37 and I think it was like, I'm 30, I don't know what my place is in the world, I don't even like getting on airplanes, I don't know what my job is, but and he's not where he wants to be, but we'll do it together and everything will be safe. Safety, safety. That was what it was about for me. Right. It wasn't about so much like security and what will people think, but just safety. And then to realize what, what ended up happening was um, I ended up kind of against my will becoming a road comic and touring and 
having to fly and having to get over the fear of flying and realizing there's a way bigger world than I knew and the marriage thing was not fitting me. At least, again, it's like that particular marriage didn't fit because he had a different relationship with his family than I have with mine. I'm close with mine, but I call the shots. I'll see you when I see you. I see them a lot, but it's, it's up to me. And he had a kind of a meddling family, and I think he wanted to leave L.A. at a certain point and settle down on Cape Cod, and I want to work till I'm 90. And, and so it, I realized, oh, my God, we're totally different people, and I'm actually becoming the person that I didn't know I was. And I remember this job I had, um, we had to go to Australia in 2009, and I had just gotten married. And I thought, I can't go. My fear of flying is too bad. I don't care how much clonopin I have. I cannot be on a plane for 16 hours. I can't even, once I land, I thought, I'm going to be aware. I'm under here. I, I can't do it. And so <laughs> I just didn't want to have panic attacks the whole time. And my boss, actually, I was writing on the show Chelsea lately, and my boss called me into his office, and he's like, you don't have to go. You can like write from here because I know that you will just be so panicked. And something told me this is your challenge. And so I went and I love that I'm acting like it was a challenge. We were flown first class and I took Klonopin. <laughs> but when I got there and I wasn't even as afraid as I thought, when sometimes I'd feel a little anxiety and then it would pass. And when I realized I loved the culture and the people, and then I wasn't thinking, oh, I wish my husband were here. When I realized, oh, I'm someone different. And I've been married eight weeks. And I was like, oh, my God. And then we had the option to extend the trip if we wanted to stay a little longer. And it was Thanksgiving in America. And I called my husband and said, I think I want to extend the trip. Would you mind? And he was like, no, it's OK, because I also um, I came down with shingles. <laughs> and I'm really contagious. And maybe it's for the best. And so. When I was there, someone said, did it ever dawn on you to go home and take care of your husband with shingles? And I was like, no. And I felt <laughs> like such a bad person. Right. But So it just, when I left, I just remember crying in this deep way that was like, I'm, I'm someone else, and now I'm trapped in this thing. And, and um, I know this sounds really, really obnoxious, and I don't mean to offend anyone who's trans, and I know she's not everyone's favorite, but... I actually really relate to Caitlyn Jenner in that weird way. And I met Caitlyn when Caitlyn was Bruce. And we went to a, a party at the E! Network. And I was miserable being married. Nothing to do with my husband. I just wasn't living my life. And all I would do is sit and watch news all the time, MSNBC, and get angry. I'm going to say I bet there was something to do with your husband. I yeah, know you're yeah. trying to be kind to him. <laughs> oh, no, it totally was. Yeah, I just wasn't the right guy. And I just, I just, but I wanted to end it. And I was afraid. And that's where the anger was coming from. And, my friend who knows the Kardashians was saying, you know, Bruce just sits there screaming at the TV all the time about politics. Oh. And I was like, I bet Bruce is unhappy in the marriage. And we ran into each other at this party, and we had met once before. And I started talking politics, not realizing he was on the right. And he started screaming at me. Obama's the worst president, or you know, blah, blah, blah. And it was just, he got in my face, and it was terrifying. And I never forget, like, I used to tell that story casually, like, Bruce Jenner's a psycho. And then, <laughs> and then when I saw this photo of him on TMZ crying in his car with nail polish on and kind of this long hair that seemed like he might be a, becoming a woman, I was like, he's, he's living his authentic okay. self. Like, I know, I don't mean to compare myself, his struggle and people of trans is it's okay. harder, this is but it's, it's, that, it's that thing of, like, oh my God, that anger you have, it just, I'm stuck and I can't get out. It's too late, that's it, it's too late. Right. It's, I cannot say, I cannot end this thing. And so I think that's what I wanted to write about was that feeling of, yes, you can, you can always get out of the situation you're in and it doesn't have to be like, you go girl, but it doesn't have to be. I was sad, I was scared, I was like, I don't know what to do, I don't know how to, I suddenly noticed that I was alone in a house and I was afraid of burglars, you know, stuff like that. And so it was, but it was honestly like a week I felt weird. And then I felt, it was like I time jumped. And all of a sudden, just by declaring I wanted a divorce, like 10 years of growing up caught up to me and I was fine doing everything on my own. It was, it reminded me of my grandmother when her husband died when she was uh, 60. And at 99, I mean, she never remarried because she was like, she started later in life. Right. And so at 37, I started doing stuff that everyone had already done in their 20s. Right. 
Um, so I wanted to capture that and not so much like, I'm just a whore who wants to date right. lots of guys. You know, it's not that at all. You did, yes, you <laughs> did capture that. Um, so talking about your writing a little bit, and was it daunting? I mean, your first book was a bestseller. Yeah. And then they call you and they say, we want a second one. Yeah, well, I called them. Okay. <laughs> and you said, I've got an idea. Yeah. Well, it's funny because as I was writing the first book, all this was going on, but I couldn't put it in there. And right. I was like, this is going to be a good book. Right. So I was taking notes and writing the first <laughs> right. one and writing a pitch. So. Right. Well, because you said that to me in an email that yeah. you're always like, like now you're doing the tour of this book, and you're like, I got divorced five years ago. Like, get over it, everybody. Why yeah, are we yeah, still exactly. talking about and they're this? Like, sorry, you, we just, just came out yesterday. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, I think there is this sense of people like um, not reading the timeline. So a lot of interviews I do, it's like, how are you feeling today? Yeah, they're like, was it weird to write about and talk about? And I'm like, no, because I waited five years. Right. I'm not like a tonal jerk. Right. <laughs> Did. Um, and so you went to your publisher and you said, I've got this idea, and they were super psyched. And then you went back, and I'm trusting you didn't go back to Malibu to write? No, I came to New York, actually. You did? The, we had this really weird weather year, the year that I was writing in LA. And I mean, we used to have some semblance of seasons. And this one year, I swear to God, it was 100 degrees every day for a year. It was 100 degrees on Christmas. And I couldn't stay inside and write. It felt unnatural to be in air conditioning and have it be really nice outside and I'm trying to write a book it just this is not where I felt like I'm doing something wrong I should be somewhere and so well, that's the curse of LA that everyone yeah. makes you feel like you should be outside all the time and I'm like why it's always like this yeah right I can do it tomorrow I know. as long as once a week I do it it's I fine. <clears throat> and yeah I actually noticed I'm changing as a person I used to live here and I ran to LA for that lifestyle and then it's been 14 years and I'm like oh I'm so sick of it and I miss New York and whenever I'm here, people are like, wouldn't have wanted to be here last week. It was raining. I'm like, no, I want to, yes, I like the rain. Right. But so I, I did an Airbnb thing and I came and lived in Brooklyn for two months. And um, almost in a sort of like taking care of my inner person way, I was like, oh, hey, Jen, here's Brooklyn. You used to live in it a long time ago and you couldn't get anything going. And now you're on your second book and like just know that as you're writing. But there's no way to like contact the old you. No. She's, she doesn't know. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> so I wrote a lot in Brooklyn, which has changed a lot. Now that was like, okay, there's too many crying babies. So I, I found a few, I ended up having to go to wine bars, you know, and like have a coffee. I mean, have a glass of red wine and then an espresso to end. And that's kind of what I would do is I would, right in places while there was a lot of traffic and noise, like people traffic and yeah. snow and all that. And that that's when I come to life. And I write on planes all the time. I used to write, you know that restaurant Lou in LA? It's like in a mini mall, like all the best restaurants. It's on no. my, Vine and Melrose. I used to sit at the bar there. I, that is a I was I rewrote, I had to do a punch up, this is true, of Transformers 3. I had to fix oh the female God. part. And I, <laughs> <laughs> and I used to sit at the bar and like, try to give her a personality. <laughs> yeah, what was she before? She was Megan Fox before. Oh. That's okay. why they needed a rewrite. Right, right, It wasn't right. like, oh, she needs more depth. They were like, someone has to put a new name on her. <laughs> <laughs> so sad. It was a really insane job. But anyway, yes, I like to write publicly, too. Yeah, I like to write in public. <laughs> and how long did you spend on this book? Um, I actually took a year and a half to write it, almost two, because as I was writing it, I had a lot of trips coming up and I thought, oh, I bet fun stuff will happen on those trips. And this is about being independent. What's more independent than going to like Europe three times in four months for right. stuff. And and I was gonna turn 40 during it. And so I, I, I asked for an extension and thank God I did because a lot of- There's great stories in Europe. It different yes. directions after that. Yeah, yes. I, I actually love London, London stuff. Oh yeah, can I tell them why I called? I'd love it. So I did this comedy festival in Dublin um, and I guess, the people of Dublin are great, but not the people that come to this comedy festival. They don't know. <laughs> Imagine, like, if everyone that does SantaCon uh, <laughs> came to a show and didn't know what... So it's in this beautiful Ivea Gardens and these tents that, once you're inside of them, look like theaters. And I got on stage, and it was seriously, like, the most stereotypical thing you've ever heard in my life. I had a joke about, like, Anyway, so I'm divorced, and I went on this date, and this woman in the front row yelled out, you should have made the marriage work. And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, are you joking? And she was like, no. And she was like, seriously, Irish Catholic. 
And then I said, well, anyway, I brought this 23-year-old guy home. And this one woman yelled out too much information. And I go, <laughs> I go, there's so much more information coming. <laughs> and then I just bombed. The kind of bombing that, like, I think people don't, just dead silence the whole time. And it's, you just want to go, why are we bullshitting each other? Let's all just stop. <laughs> right. <I> stop <laughs> Let's end the shroud. Yeah. And then the show ended with like a bunch of guys who had rented, a, like 60 dudes bought tickets because they were having a, a university reunion. And they just thought they would just come and talk. And they just were, like the Santa company, those screaming and yelling. And I was like, it was the worst. Like, instead of going to a bar, we're going to go to a comedy yeah. festival and just make it our own space. And so every American was bombing, and I ran into two really talented people, um, Anthony Jeselnik and Neil Brennan, and they had bombed. I'm like, oh, if you guys bombed, then I don't feel so bad. And the, <laughs> the owner, the guy that runs the festival, was like, I'll take you guys to this after-hours pub, and you know, you drink your troubles away. And so we went, and they were giving us Jameson, and I was telling the bartender what happened. He goes, oh, Irish people are a bunch of cunts. And I go, well, yeah. yeah. And, and he goes, but that's the term of endearment here. I go, no, I know. I love it. And he goes, I go, oh, my God, look at my Twitter. And it was coming in like, you sucked tonight. You're horrible. And he was like, just tweet, Ireland is a bunch of drunken, dumb cunts or something. <laughs> and I, he goes, they'll get it. They'll like you. You'll get them back. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did. And then I forgot that I tweeted it because I kept drinking with my friend and the night got really intense. We're all like telling each other our soul secrets. And I leave and it's 6 a.m. I don't even realize that it had stayed open that late. And um, I'm feeling great and I have one more show the next day and then I'm out of there and I go to bed and I wake up and I check. I'd have been picked up by all the like TMZs of Dublin. Like American comedian says Dublin's a bunch of cunts. And people were like sending me death threats. like. You're a whore and a wretch, and I hope you die. It was unreal. The more I apologized, the worse it got. I was just like, forget it. And so then I couldn't, I got a big crowd that day because people were coming to see. To hate you. And they ended up liking me. I came totally hungover. Right. I had stains on my clothes, no makeup, and I was just like, I sat on a stool and I was like, I'm so sorry. Here's what happened. And I told them the story with more detail. And they were like, yeah. And oh, it was fine. Oh, you got him. That's good. Yeah, I got him back. But um, I probably, when people ask me, are you coming to Dublin again? I'm like, not for a while. <laughs> and is the difference between writing your book and doing stand-up, like, it's such a huge difference, right? Yeah. The immediate response, like, even from Twitter, and then they're coming to scream at you. And then the time it takes, the year and a half it takes to write the book, and then you're editing it, and then pub yeah. date, and all that stuff. Like, how did you make that adjustment? Well, I kind of like writing a book because I love writing, but sometimes I don't want that. I need that immediate feedback, or else I have no job. But right. it doesn't mean I always you don't love crave that. That's it. the right. process. Right. And there are some things I want to say that I'm like, you be quiet, I'm saying this. And you can read it or not, you can throw it in the trash. Right. Um, but I'm going to say this the way I want to say it, and I'm hopefully going to make it funny or interesting or suspenseful or whatnot, but no one's around to bother me about how I do right. it until the editor suggests things, and that's fine. But that's what I love about it is it's actually my own little, like, I actually get to express myself without having any restrictions. Right. And then because I don't, I'm not an author first and I, I feel self-conscious that I'm not Ernest Hemingway, it doesn't bother me that I have this and that people are going to have to wait a year and a half to read it. I'm right. fine with right. that. Like, right. I'm just like, whenever it comes out, right. it comes out, it's fine. And then once it's out, I've read it so many times that I'm like, yeah, this isn't bad. Sometimes I'll pick it up after three months and I'm like, good job, Jen. Right. And I don't hate it. <laughs> and good. so like, that's all I can say about it is I don't hate it. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think, a good, a good thing. But yeah, I have all the patience in the world when I'm writing because... I do get a. I, I would be more crushed if people didn't like the book than if people didn't like my stand-up. Right. Because I remember Joan Rivers saying in her documentary, tell her she's not funny, she doesn't care. Tell her she's a bad actress, it hurts. Because that's what she really wanted to be. Yeah. And I really wanted to be an author since oh, I was a kid. True? Yeah. I didn't know, because you, you never wanted to be an actor. That's never like a... No, no, I did. Oh, you did? A, yeah, I went to acting college and everything. And oh, wow. I thought I was going to be this dramatic actress. But whenever I did anything, people would laugh when I was trying to be serious. Right. <laughs> and that's why I say it takes eight years to be funny, because 
I would be like, no, I'm being serious, you guys. And that's what's funny about me is when I get all Richard Lewis-y and right. stuff. <laughs> and until I accepted that and realized that about myself, which took like 12 years, now I can play into what's funny about me right. on stage. But as a kid, like when I was in fifth grade, um, or third grade is when I started, I would just write essays for fun. And oh, wow. we had like authors come to school and I would always tell them I wanted to be an author. And, and then... Um, Actually, in college, they suggested I change my major from acting to writing. I was like, thanks, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, but it went from writing to acting, and then, but deep down, that's like my childhood thing. And so, if people say you're a bad author, I think that would cut me way more than you're not funny because. No, you're a best selling author. I know. You did it. I did it. <laughs> well, you know, I, then I have to go, well, that just means a lot of people bought it. Just they all liked it. <laughs> Did, we, did she come out? I heard some rustling, but I don't... <laughs> I have 42 more questions. Oh, okay, well, yeah. You guys are free, right? You've got time. Okay. Let me see. This is a good question, because I didn't get to my question, so I'm just going to use this. I love it. My mom is in town, and she's driving me nuts, but she's really nice. How do you feel about yours? And this actually, this is what someone thing I wanted to ask you, because you talk in your book about, you say, I'm so scared for my parents to read this. Yeah. And so I was wondering, so this is a question about your mom, but it's also I want to know, sorry, I'm punching up your question. <laughs> but I, um, I want to know sort of what is it like to do the work even though you know that it could really upset people close to you. Oh, yeah. Um, I just have to, well, Bob Odenkirk said, not to me personally, I heard him say it on a podcast, uh, do your art as though your parents were dead. Right. And so <laughs> I think that's a really great advice. Like, this is you. They created you. And tough crap. They created you. And I'm 42 now. It's like, I shouldn't be afraid. And I email my mom, don't read the book. It's too sexy. It's not too sexy for us, but like for my 78-year-old <laughs> formerly very Catholic mom, and she was like, never, you're a grown woman, Jen. And I was like, yeah, but I think I don't, like, I, want, I don't want her to feel sad for me and be right. like, what do you mean you had a one-night stand, or what do you mean you stayed out till six? Like, right. I just don't want her to worry about me or anything like that. And I think she's not, um, she's way less Catholic than she used to be, and we talk about sex a lot, and she'll say to me, she said to me one time last Christmas, what if, um, what if, okay, what if, the premarital sex is a sin and it is a god. What do you do? <laughs> I go, I guess I go to hell. And she goes, how are you okay with it? I go, because I don't believe in it. She's like, but what if it's true? I go, then I'm, it's going to be awful. <laughs> and then that was the end of the conversation. Right. And then, um, and she laughs. Like, we have a very open and honest relationship, but... I would just hate for her to go down a rabbit hole of self, like, to, what did I do wrong? You know, like, right. just, I, just because of some of the reactions she's had in the past, right. which is, like, the first time she found out I smoked pot, which I don't at all anymore. I don't put anything in my lungs, but she found out I did in college. And by the way, I mean, like, tried it. I wasn't even regularly smoking. And I just, my dad picked me up one weekend. I was coming home to do laundry, and he was like, Mom's in bed, and I was like, oh, shit, I know what that means. <laughs> and so she just, like, would lay in bed and, and cry and be like, to because her, there was, like, heroin, and you're going to, you know. She was this. crying in bed? Because, oh, my God. Yeah, and so anyway, so she doesn't drive me nuts anymore. I think, um, you know, I think therapy helps and, and detaching and not trying to, I think, like, my mom, my, Whenever anyone says their mom's driving them nuts, especially if my sister might say something like that, I'm like, that's because you're trying to change and fix. If you can't let, they can't drive you nuts if you're just doing that. And if you can preemptively love them and know that, know their little anxieties and before they come up, just be like, I am so glad you're here. I need lots of quiet time though. And just be funny about yeah. it. I mean, my sense of humor like saves my relationship with my family. That's so great. Yeah. My, I had a therapist who said like, you know, if you're walking down a hiking trail and you see a rattlesnake, you don't try to make it not a rattlesnake. Just let it do its rattlesnake thing. Yes. <laughs> and it won't, it'll leave you alone. And that's sort of... A I good think all the years, too, that I was thinking that I knew how to, like, be and deal with my family, they could sense that condescension, too. And it's right. like, just chill. And, and also just, like, yeah, let her drive you nuts. Right. Um, I just passed over to... Um, Fuck, Mary kills. We're going to skip those. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, what's your most embarrassing childhood moment? 
It's funny because I have many, but I don't remember <laughs> being embarrassed during them because I was such a weird kid that I thought I was right and they were wrong. And I think I, it is true. Um, I, I'll tell a sad one. I, could, I dressed up like Mozart and went to school once. That wasn't sad. <laughs> the movie Amadeus had come out and I was like, that's awesome. And I played piano and so I was like, I'm gonna be fun and crazy and people didn't like that. And I was like, these people are squares. <laughs> I did something else like that. I, I went to a costume party dressed like Groucho Marx, but everyone else was dressed like Madonna and stuff. I was, I was Harpo Marx for Halloween. Yeah. Well, how old were you? I was eight, I think. Did you? I'd never even seen a Marx Brothers movie like that. I had seen the Marx oh, Brothers okay. movies. Mine was but don't you think of... it's kind of lame that I was Harpo? <laughs> No, I think it's even cooler I think that, I think it because like, it means you saw a movie. <laughs> it's true. Because I saw so many movies. I only, mine was because of the, this Vlasic pickle commercial where there was a cartoon duck holding a pickle like a cigar. Yeah, that's the best tasting pickle I ever had. And my mom explained he's doing an homage to Groucho Marx. And then I saw a picture and I was like, oh, that's funny. And I thought that would be a real like deep cut thing to do at a costume party and people were not into it at all. And I was like, again, just wearing bracelets doesn't make you Madonna. Like right. I was in the thing. <laughs> but I think my most embarrassing childhood memory is uh, I was bullied in school by boys, like physically bullied. And um, it didn't help because my mom was a recess disciplinarian, which is like the person that just yells at everyone on the playground. And, um, and it was a volunteer job. I'm like, she can't even use the excuse. Like, I paid for your school. Right. Like, you, no. And so, um, but I got bullied and I fell in a puddle and I had to go to the nurse's office. And my mom actually wasn't there that day and she was driving in to bring me dry clothes. And I was just in a towel. And the biggest bully, his name was Ethan Hawke. No, not, no, Ethan Hawke. Ethan oh. Hawke's the actor, right? Right, yeah. okay. <laughs> I thought this was where you told us that Ethan Hawke bullied you. Oh, no. Oh, I love him. Uh, I was, um, Ethan caught me naked for a second. And when you're 10, you don't want to be naked. It happened to me of... when I was 11, David Carmel, sixth grade pool party. What did he say? Nothing. I just heard him. He opened a curtain yeah. and then closed it, and I heard him say, um, like, that was Jenny, and everyone laughed because I screamed. Oh, that's kind of no, it sounds funny. Years, yeah, years just, of shame. Ethan just made a weird noise like, ew. And I was like, here's an awful thing, though. This is a very, so that's my most embarrassing moment. Like, it hurt, and I didn't want to go back. I, I just ended up going home, and I didn't want to go back into school. And, and, and uh, it was awful. But years later, he, um, he bullied me all through whatever. And then high school, when it didn't count anymore, I was like, are you still obsessed with me? So then... Uh, he wanted to become an actor, and, but he didn't have the guts to move to California. Not that you have to to be an actor, but he, he didn't even do that. And then he, um, I heard he was running around one of the high school reunions looking for me to apologize. And, but I don't go to them. Right. And then on Facebook, I, we became Facebook friends. I'm like, fine. And then he put a, this is really a nasty thing for me to say, and I just please understand that. He put a, his wife had just had a baby. And he put a picture of the newborn on Facebook, and I, I thought it was a joke because I've never seen <laughs> such a hideous baby in my life. <laughs> no, but Ethan used to call me ugly, and used to, Ethan used to call me ugly and follow me home and throw like put rocks and. So, he I mean, was he, in love with you, right? He, I mean, I don't know, but he used to call me ugly like my whole life. Anytime I think I'm ugly, it's that voice. Oh. And so when I saw that baby, I was like, oh my god, he just found this really. I thought it was like a. Someone did something funny with a photo. <laughs> and I almost wrote LOL under it. <laughs> and the, because I didn't read the thing that his wife had had a baby, I thought it was just a funny picture. Right. And then I thought, well, I don't want to write on his wall, I'm not his friend. And then later I found out he had a baby, and I was like, <sighs> and then I was like, that's what God does. You get an ugly baby if you're being I went back and checked, and the baby is beautiful now. But you know, some babies don't look great when they're born. A lot of them. Um, some are very cute right away, and that's, yes. that's always a good thing. I think just wait, wait a month to show the pictures. Just be like they're taking some time. When I had my first, my first child, um, there was a compliment at the hospital that the nurses and doctors would say, which was, "It looks, she looks like a C-section." <laughs> oh, because their face wasn't all... It wasn't smushed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was like at fat camp, they used to say, you don't look... Wait, they used to say, um, you don't look like you should be here. 
Oh, that's nice. Yeah, equal, equal compliment. And you look like a C-section still to this. <laughs> I know. It's perfect. Um, hold on. There's a lot of fuck, Mary Kill. Uh, I kind so of want to just go back to my questions. No offense, you guys. Go back. Um, no, which comedians inspire you? I hate that question. Okay. Me I too. get asked. It I didn't ask it. No, I get asked. Idiots. I get asked it a lot, but I don't. They wouldn't know them. They're friends of mine. It's like I don't. It's, right. I think comic inspiration is different than music. Like I don't. I take it to mean like which comedians do you imitate, and I. I just can't. That's not a thing. Um. Good. Okay. I have all these questions about your book, but I feel like maybe, like, why do friends with benefits get such a bad rap? Oh yeah, it's funny. I, I just don't know how much. You, have you been talking about this like nonstop? No, I haven't talked about that. Okay, good. I, there's a chapter in my book I dedicate to a guy that I had a friends with benefits relationship with from when I was 22 up until he was one of the people that helped me through my divorce. And so, um, but I never. He was not the right kind of guy for me. I never would have fallen for him. And my therapist and I would have disagreements about that. And she would say, no, oxytocin will kick in. I'm like, it has with other people, but it just never will with him. He was an old college friend. And it was, it was one of those things where we could turn it off or turn it on. And when we were in relationships, we would just have lunch once every couple months. And we were just really good friends. And um, weird times in our life where we felt different than other people and like misunderstood, we would come together. And not always in a sexual way. And so I just took our, our life through this journey where to where when we finally just realized we weren't attracted to each other in that way anymore. It was just almost like a nice thing where we actually spent time with true intimacy, like the way that married people are like, it's been 20 years and you know the sex has died down, but it's intimate. And I just thought, friends of benefits doesn't have to just be this shallow thing that, oh, you're secretly in love, but you both can't commit. Like It was really just like when we felt like it, we would do this thing. Now I wouldn't do it. Like Now I'm relationship only. Um, and right now I'm not going to be in one for a year, but I, uh, I really, for me, that was a really healthy experience. And I sort of grew up with someone, and in a weird way, one of my most healthy relationships, but um, unhealthy because we could see other people. Right. <laughs> or, I mean, like, still, like a, is he still a part of your life like that? Could he be if you called him tomorrow? Not sexually. Um, I would only have sex now in the bounds of a relationship. Like I completely went the other way this this year. Um, but no, we're still friends. But like I don't see him as much because he's a musician and he tours and stuff like that. And so, um, but I have seen him a couple times platonically in the last few years. Definitely. Actually, when my last book came out, um, I found myself with nothing to do one night in New York, and I texted him like I'm in bed at eight o'clock in New York. And he was like, I live here now. And I was like, you do? And so we went and had dinner. And that was it. You know, it was like right. nothing, nothing happened. But yeah, so he's still a, a friend, not like my best friend, but it was a really healthy experience for me. And it wasn't anything like in the movies where it's like someone's secretly pining and the guy's getting away with everything. And right. you know, I don't know. I think there can be something to it if, if, if both people really don't want something. But right. it's a hard thing to always gauge. Right. And you say also that it's like married people yeah. Feel pretty uncomfortable with the idea. I, my married friends, when I told them that, you know, they were like, oh, well, it's not the same. And I was like, no, it's not the same, but there are other ways to have bonding and intimacy with someone without it having to be marriage. Right. Like, obviously, marriage is reserved for other people that I actually could build a life with. Like, he's not someone you do that with. But yeah, I remember just telling some friends, like, hey, you know, and I got, at least I have my old friend with benefits because I wasn't ready to like start dating, but it's like I was still a person with needs. Yeah. And so people were like, oh, don't become one of those people. It, it seemed like the trap. Like I was saying I was going to get a cat and sit in. It was like, oh, don't you're <laughs> just trapped in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like, he's not good enough for you. I'm like, no, I know. That's why we're not dating. Right. Like it's <laughs> you're not searching for a life partner. All right. So I don't know if I'm supposed to. Guys. Who ends this thing? <laughs> Is Gloria here? What if Where Gloria, are the Natalies? What if Gloria Vanderbilt had put all the fuck Mary? <laughs> <laughs> all right, if they're not coming, I'm going to keep talking. I have more questions. Right. Should we talk about Marilyn and Royce, or is it too hard, do you think, to get across? Has anyone seen this YouTube video of these two women called Marilyn and Royce? Yes. Yes? Yeah. Okay, I just, that's another thing that I... That we really connected on. Yeah, Jen I, introduced me to these. They're a YouTube sensation. Yeah. They died many years ago, but they're 
how do you describe them? They're best friends. Best friends, two older women that live in a room in a hotel together in downtown LA. Like and on Skid Row, basically. Yeah, they're like kind a of really. Like, it's very good. They're on gardens, welfare, for but sure. best friends. Yeah. And one of them is this very down to earth, just like, you know, I take life as it comes, um, Marilyn. And Royce is this fabulous, rings on every finger. And she might be have a little dementia, probably. Big, fabulous hats, amazing outfits. And th there's one article about them in the LA Times, and someone from the 90s, and someone's doing a documentary on them, but everyone's like, who are these women? And they became best friends. Um, Marilyn, the more grounded one, uh, used to look after rich people's homes in Beverly Hills. And Royce, uh, she claims she used to work in the fashion industry in New York, but we don't know. She's, and they became good friends, and it seems like Marilyn is really enth enthralled, but Royce is very mean to her, and she smokes and drinks wine and sits in the bed going, oh, God. Marilyn will be like, I saw Milton Berle once. Oh, God, that garbage. I only know opera. I know it note by note. <laughs> And it's very little Edie and her mother, and it's there's only about 12 minutes footage total. It's all broken up into different clips, and it's tragic and sad, but it's funny. And when people don't get it, I don't like that's my that's how I know if that's someone's a quality person. Yeah, I'm like if you don't get it, <laughs> if they think it's funny, like ooh, 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 you know, and if they think it's too tragic to watch, like they they both go to this sports bar one night. It's just the bar in the lobby of the hotel. And Marilyn is all enthralled with the baseball game. She's like, well, it's going well. And Royce is all like glammed up. And she's like, oh, God, I don't want to hear about sports. I'm just trying to sit here and wait to kill myself. Like, she's so funny. <laughs> she's the funniest person in the world. And she's just talking about taking ballet in Paris as a kid. And no women in America aren't elegant anymore. But there's a kind of grace to them about growing older, like they wouldn't be the same people if they were there with their husbands and kids. And the that's that's what I love about it. Yeah. Actually, is like at the base of it is this best friendship, and mm -hmm. in some ways it's like a real fantasy. Like if I could wind up like with Lena in yes. a hotel Which drinking wine. You think? Um, it's actually a really good question. Um, I actually think probably. You like Royce, but of course. I, I mean, I yeah. just, I just, it's hard though, because it's hard to imagine her quite as Marilyn, but. <laughs> right, right, right. I just don't picture, well, I don't know her very well. I don't it's like everyone's pictures. Royce. Yeah, everyone's, everyone's inner demon is Royce. Right. Like when you've just like had too many Chardonnays or even not had any. Yeah. You're just like, oh, shut up. Yeah. Like, there's something about her, but there's something about them if you can check out that video. But it's weird things like that that sort of, you can get to know someone by just showing them that and seeing their reaction. Well, also, you can get to know someone. I mean, that's when you're talking about like the beauty of Twitter, when you, the yes, all women, and then your yeah. new version of yes, all women. But that you can also make friends through connecting on the internet. And it's so shocking to me still that that happens. If like, that we're two yeah. grown ass women. And yeah. we truly became friends through the internet. We have a lot of mutual friends, yeah. but that's how we met. Yeah, like, I we met, met tonight for the first time. Oh. But now we're moving into a hotel together yeah. in downtown LA. <laughs> but yeah, I met, I met someone I ended up dating for a long time. Is now like my best friend on Twitter because we, we all had mutual friends. And right. it was like we just happened to never run into each other in real life. And then I met uh, another girlfriend on, on Twitter who I see because she lives in LA. And it's so strange if you told me that in my late 30s, early 40s, I would make friends online. I would... By the way, when the internet came out, I was like, what? Only freaks are on that thing. Oh, my that God. Is I remember <laughs> running into this guy in New York. Did you know Evan Bernard? Just wondering. No. Does anyone here? But anyway, he was like, it was the 90s or something, and he had a new girlfriend. I said, how'd you guys meet? And he was like, the internet. And I was like, <laughs> like it was the funniest joke I'd ever heard yeah. because it was like, only free. It's like saying like the back of the village voice or whatever. You yeah. Know, like. Well, and it's funny because I've never done internet dating or Tinder and I won't do it. It doesn't seem romantic to me and I don't trust anybody, but I would meet someone on Twitter in right. a weird way because you can see who they are. Yeah, totally. And you can find out who their friends are, but you can't. Or they're playing like the longest con in the world, like a exactly. five year and if they are, then Twitter great, handle. Then <laughs> yeah. They deserve a girlfriend. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, there, there's something really about the internet that I have no um, shame about. Like I, I think too. it's kind of 
an awesome space. Me too. <laughs> so embarrassing. I think so too. All right, I guess you have to sign books. Yeah, I guess we're signing books. Oh, here we go. Oh, here they go. Hi. Okay. Okay. I guess we're wrapping this up. Thank you, everybody. Thank for you guys coming. for coming. I can do this for 10 more hours. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.